afternoon. I'm your host, Thunder Sagona. And I am also your host, Sean Ramkunis. And welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. Hunter and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. Here is a musical quote for today. Music, once admitted to the soul, becomes a sort of spirit and never dies. Edward Bulwer-Lytton. So let me introduce today's guest on Music Speaks. Emily is a violinist slash violist in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Emily Benigno has received her BM in violin performance and her MM in Suzuki pedagogy and performance, both from Ithaca College. She has studied with Carrie Rooning Hummel, Calvin Wiersma, Kyle Ambrust, Viola, Susan Waterbury, Fritz Gerhardt, and Sylvia Arajaman. She is a passionate teacher committed to teaching students at any age and level. Emily teaches in Halifax at the Scotia Suzuki School of Music. She aims to help each student find their unique voice with music and to use the violin or viola as an expressive tool. She is also an avid performer and has subbed with numerous orchestras in upstate New York, including the Cayuga Chamber Orchestra, the Binghamton Philharmonic, the Catskill Symphony Orchestra, Upper Ithaca, the Ithaca New Music Collective, and the Clinton Symphony Orchestra. So, Sean, how do you know the guest for today? So, I got to know her through Ithaca College, as she mentioned in her bio, and she is quite the musician. And once she said that she was going to be able to do the show, I was like, Hunter, oh my god! <laughs> so, I am so excited to sit down and talk with her today. For the record, he did actually say that. So <laughs> now I would like to welcome Emily to our podcast. All right. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing good. And me and Hunter have a lot of questions to ask you today, but we're going to get right into it because we have a lot to cover in such a little amount of time to do so. Um, I wanted to mention first and foremost, um, I want people to know at home that you are a nice person. And Thank the you. time that you randomly bought me a donut was just a really nice moment in our history. <laughs> you were like, hey, do you want a donut? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And we went and we just talked for a little while and we caught up. Um, and I thought that was really great. Um, I want to talk about that first because that's a big part of your personality um, where did that mantra come from of you just being such a warm and nice person? Oh gosh. <laughs> well, first I'm honored. Thank you for, um, for thinking that I'm a really nice person. Um, I talk about it a lot with, uh, with my husband, but like everyone just needs five more minutes or like five more seconds of understanding. Um, so that's, that's sort of like a recent development that I can sort of like put, uh, a phrase or, or put some words into it. But I think that, you know, deep down, everybody has, like, everybody has redeeming qualities. And especially when you're in music school with people and you're around them 24 seven and you're creating art and you're vulnerable and like the, the emotions are pretty high. Um, you just can't help but admire people for what they, what they show you. So I love getting to know people. And I always think that like there's more than meets the eye. And that's, that's what I want to get to know when I meet people. 
And I, I can honestly say that um, getting to know you has been part of uh, a great sort of acceptance within the School of Music, you know, knowing people, it, you mean like, especially you know people in the school, they can be pretty egotistical sometimes, but then you meet really nice people and they make your day better. So I think I wanted to An egotistical it. musician? No. That's not even possible. Never heard of him. <laughs> Hunter, you want to take over the next question? Sure. So, as I understand it, uh, you've had a relatively recent move to Nova Scotia and a relatively new married life. Yes. How has yes. the um, how has the whole change been from location to job to um, living arrangements? Um, imagine like a like a tornado, um, and then there's like twelve of them. And that's kind, of, <laughs> that's kind of what it's been like, but they're all really nice tornadoes for the most part. So, um, so the move was, uh, that was kind of like its own thing. And um, the move was interesting because I fell into my job very serendipitously. I had a friend who works at the school that I now work at, and I was getting towards the end of my master's degree, and I had asked around, like, you know, what are the kind of schools that you guys are teaching at? And he was telling me about this one. And I was like, oh, that one sounds really interesting. So, um, so I went up and just went to observe for the week. And then the observation turned into like, hey, can you teach while you're here? And then that turned into like, do you want a job at the end of the week? Um, so the move felt like it happened really quickly. Um, immigrating wasn't too hard because I'm a dual citizen, which made it, which made it really nice. And I thought that there weren't going to be a lot of cultural differences between Halifax and being back in Ithaca. But every now and again, there really are things that surprise me. So, Sean, you, you know me uh, a little bit. And I consider myself not quite a type A or a type B, sort of somewhere in between. But here in Halifax, I'm such a type A personality. Like, it's very common that when you are emailing with parents or with coworkers, that you're not going to hear back for like three days. And if you send like a nudgy, a nudgy email or a reminder, then it's like, whoa, what is wrong with her? Like, is she angry? Is she upset? <laughs> so, um, so everything just moves a little bit slower out here, which has been so nice. I've um, found it to be really relaxing and I've found that, the time to even get like normal everyday things done has helped me just be so much calmer as a person. So I find that I'm a product of my environment. And when I was at school, like in my undergrad and my master's, and up until then, um, schooling is so kind of like achievement and product driven. And now that I'm up here, life doesn't revolve around a product. It just revolves around the journey. And that's been really nice because I find that I'm now so much more calm and relaxed and more in the moment, which has been good. So Halifax was one tornado and like the move. That was a good one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, it's so nice being by the ocean. It is really such a delight to like wake up and hear seagulls and so much like wildlife and to like look out my apartment and then to, like there's just water. And it's, it's really cool. So the city is beautiful. 
the people are really kind and there's so much music here. I feel like okay. it's a really good place to be. I'd mentioned earlier that Halifax is kind of isolated from the rest of Canada. And so that creates a really interesting problem where if people want something, they have to make it. Mm -hmm. So you can't really fly people in as easily as if you were in like Toronto or Montreal or something like that. Like it's a really big hassle to get people out here. So what's that resulted in has been such a rich theater culture and oh, we love band that. scene. And um, just like the arts are so appreciated here. So it's a really thriving uh, local arts culture that I'm really proud to be a part of. And being married has been, has been great too. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, he's the afterthought. <laughs> you know, being, being with Jordan is, is really just such a delight. Um, we've been apart for quite a bit because of COVID. Um, well, no, not because of COVID, but because of immigration. He's American, so it's a lot harder for him to get up here. But when COVID started, the announcement from Trudeau came that they're closing the borders. And like less than an hour later, my husband was in the car trying to cross over the border to get here. So uh. he made it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're having a, a really good time, actually, which feels really weird to say during COVID because it's like the most time that we've been able to spend together since mm -hmm. I moved up here in August last year. So I suppose if you look at it with that glass half full mindset, right? I mean, it's, you've, you've benefited from, in this case, the isolation because you've got to spend time with your husband and you've got to be in a community that seems to um, be, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, I don't know. It sounded like to me you were describing a Hallmark movie. Um, <laughs> which It kind of feels like that up here. Does it? Because oh, I've yeah. been seeing way too many of them because my mother and grandmother love them. And so it's been like on loop in the house and I'm like, okay, that's enough of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a, there's a, a benefit to that. Um, and what I wanted to ask also about was you mentioned this school that you are working at. Um, it's a different, not, at, not atmosphere, but... I know it's a, it's a different type of school. Could you describe it a little bit? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you called I, it a unique experience. I love the school that I work at. Um, it is such a delight. So it's an after-school program and it's a, it's a private music school. So we take care of all the kids that are you know, coming for lessons after school or before school. And our school is predominantly a Suzuki school. So we offer violin, viola, cello, uh, guitar, piano. But besides that, outside of it, there's a really strong fiddle culture here. So fiddle really? is really important to uh, Nova Scotians. And so we call it like the Maritimes. It's the, like the four provinces that are out east. Um, so there's like fiddling that we teach the kids. We have a theory program that I'm part of. We do chamber music. There's also musical theater, hip hop, step dance. Um, uh, there's a fitness class too. And in the summertime, we have like a traditional arts camp. So kids learn like boron and tin whistle and all sorts of, all sorts of unique to Nova Scotia art forms. So it's a very vibrant school that um, has really been flexible and is just, it's always changing. So the thing that strikes me the most about working at the school is that um, all of the kids all of their wants and interests in some way 
my directors tried to tried to address it. So um, kids who want to learn more hip hop, we've got like a hip hop orchestra now. So like the kids are playing hip hop music while the dancers get to like dance. And so there's a lot of cross collaboration, which is mm -hmm. really nice. I, I find that so many of these young musicians have a really deep love of music because they're interacting with their peers mm -hmm. so often, which is really, which is really so special. So that's my favorite part about working at the school, like having just so many of my families and students be interconnected. It's awesome. That's very cool. That's not something you get to see in a lot of places because, you know, in so many places, the arts are struggling so much that a lot of times they're non-existent. And I mean, you know, Trumbull has a good music program in that it's always been there. It's, it'll probably be there for quite some time. Um, and Trumbull High, particularly, you know, their band is well known, brings renowned people, but I wouldn't, I don't know, it, it just, it doesn't seem to have the same uh, community interest as it seems to in where you are. I'm also really lucky though, that because it's a Suzuki program, the parents have to be involved. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of it. Like no one just drops their kids off and then picks them up later. The parents are always there and the community comes more from the hallway and mm -hmm. like these passing moments than it does from like the big concerts or the recitals. So having all of these moments of, of little connections, like Sean, we were talking about like the donut, right? Like that was five minutes or like 10 minutes. Um, so like all of these parents get just five more minutes with each other and that's, that's what makes the community. So just mm -hmm. having the, the space where everyone can sort of choose how they wanna reach out has also been really nice. That is, that's very cool. And certainly not, even if it's, like you said, passing moments, they're not to be taken lightly. Um, and before, just my last question, this was sort of supposed to be one question, but it spiraled into many. Sorry, Sean. Um, you mentioned that there's a big fiddle culture, uh, surprisingly. Um, do you think that is born out of the ethnic makeup of Nova Scotia, being that its heritage lies in Scotland and Ireland? That's a huge part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's a, that's a really big part of it. The, for a lot of people, fiddle music is stuff that pieces that their grandparents or their great grandparents or aunts and uncles have done. There are a lot of amateur musicians in Nova Scotia. So it's fiddle music is something that's accessible to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to a lot of people. There's, um, a really famous fiddly, uh, fiddler, Natalie McMaster, and she's from Nova Scotia. And she's, um, do you guys know who Mark Wood is from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like this, uh, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra is like this, this rock group, and they use like strings and traditional instruments to, to do rock music. And Natalie McMaster is kind of like the fiddle version of that. She has like <laughs> these huge productions, and she has like a gazillion kids and they all like step and play at the same time and they sing and it's just like such a production and it's so cool like the kids love it so it's fiddle is deeply ingrained in the heritage of Nova Scotians it's widely seen by like the younger kids and by you know by all generations and um, there are a lot of really interesting influences of fiddle music so it's not only is it like Scottish and Irish 
it's also like a little bit of Métis, which is like a blend of French Canadian and like Mi'kmaq and First Nations music coming together. So Nova Scotia has its own niche brand of fiddling that's called Cape Breton style. And so that's, that's like a really interesting, a really interesting style to, to learn a little bit about. So yeah, Nova Scotia has got a lot of love for fiddling. Oh, very cool. And speaking of music, that's what Sean's next question is about. So Emily, I've been asking this question to a lot of our guests because I've been sort of gauging them on like artistic sort of choices. And I think this one's going to be a good one for you, especially. Mm -hmm. So if you had to talk to any artist, composer, author, writer, producer, or director, who would it be? What would you ask them? And where would you take them? And what would you want to drink slash eat or do with them? God, that is such a hard question to answer. <laughs> so many, so many people that I would want to get to know better. Um, sorry, I'm going to take just a second to really think about this one. Sure. I think that the, the person who I would love to like spend a day with would be Joe Hiseishi. He's the, um, sorry, I'm probably butchering his last name. He's the composer for like the Miyazaki films. So he does all the soundtracks, like oh. Spirited Away, House of the Castle, Nausicaa. And um, I love movie soundtracks. It's one of my favorite things to listen to because it tells such a story. And soundtracks, mm -hmm. they really make or break how you're gonna connect to a scene or to a character. And I find that the way that he tells story through music is really captivating. And the pace is a little bit slower and you get a little bit more visceral emotion from him, like less tuneful melodies. And that I find really interesting. Like how in the world is he conveying so much by saying so little? So I would love to get to talk with him more and to understand how he thinks about music because I think it is so different from how I think about music and how from like a Western music standpoint, we think about music. So I find that he would challenge a lot of the beliefs that I have on how music is digested and how music is held. And yeah, that'd be really interesting. What would I do with him? Or would you eat with him? What would I eat with him? Okay, so in, in my fantasy land, would definitely get like some street food absolutely sure, like 100 <laughs> we'd, we'd have to get some like gnarly street food but then eat it in a beautiful place like halifax has like the public gardens which are mm. gorgeous and there's like tons of variety in the, the kinds of flowers and trees and so like i would love to like eat a hero with joey seishi in the public gardens and just like talk for a long time and bring some tea and just like have a day of it sure sure it's funny that you mentioned street food because yesterday we interviewed michael stern and he was saying that um he would want to sit down and have street food with uh leonard bernstein oh that's another good one yeah I he's thought like, was really grab a hot dog yeah he's yeah. like <laughs> eat a hot dog because if i had to go to a fancy restaurant i would be more nervous to sit mm -hmm. down with him i thought that was kind of funny uh emily we have been such We've been graced by Ithaca College in many ways, by a lot of different opportunities. Now, you're looking back, what is something that you really cherished at your time at Ithaca College? 
That's another, because there was so much that I really loved. Um, because I was going to say hmm. the first time that I actually met you was through um, the video game Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. That 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 I was that I maybe did for like a year, um, and I got to know you a little bit. But then I really got to know you through ma my masters. But what would you say your your time at Ithaca College was defined by? I think to sum it up in the the most concise way. I find that Ithaca College offered me a lot of times to be challenged where my perception of who I was supposed to be as a musician was challenged, where my expectation of who I was supposed to be as a musician was challenged. The kinds of music that I was listening to and getting to perform was challenged all the time. Um, but also an ability too. I found that the, the standard was really high when I started and I came from a very small town and I was used to being a, a big fish in a very small pond. And it was really nice to be a small fish in a big pond. That's when I learned the most. I think I learned more in my first year of college than in my other three years, simply because I was just so open to the fact that I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> so that was, so that was really nice. Um, and some formative moments were, Sean, like you said, like the, the Gamer Symphony Orchestra, conducting that and um, being a part of that group for three years, that was a lot of fun. So for my first three years, I was just playing. And then for the last one, being able to conduct and have a little bit more ownership and, and leadership was really nice because I got very comfortable in those three years, but then the conducting position was, was very challenging. Um, I'll never forget my very first concert at IC. And I was with Jeffrey Meyer as our conductor. And I was in the back of the second violin section. And I don't think I've ever smiled for an entire concert before, but like that one, that one, it was just like the whole time. And looking back at it, I probably should have known my part like a little bit more now that my standards are a little bit, are a little bit higher. Um, but I just remember being so moved by the fact that all these people who are around the same age as I was, were able to come together with such a clear vision and like truly make something beautiful. And that was, that was really powerful because before I didn't really think that that was possible. It was sort of like the group project syndrome where it's like, <sighs> okay, only like three people. We've got three <laughs> people together. One person is going to really do the work and the other two aren't really going to do anything. And, um, and then all of a sudden we were, we were all together and everyone's on the same page. And it's like, oh, this is what it means. This is, this is what it means to be in an, in an ensemble. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was really formative. Um, and I think that the other thing that was just so special was like my connection with my professors. So like Sean, you know, the class sizes are small and you have the opportunity to get to know your professors and you get the opportunity to be more than just a face or a name. And it's really up to you to connect with people. And that was, that was a really powerful experience, like getting to know even my studio professors more. Um, so I really loved that about Ithaca College, the small the small class sizes and having the opportunity to just like go in any direction that you want to. That was amazing. 
I, I, I think that's a great sentiment, I think, to talk about in college because a lot of the friends that I've made now really stem from there and are still there. Um, and like, as I'm saying, my friend now who is in Halifax, it's all talking to us right now from Ithaca College. Um, Emily, I want to I wanna tell you something real quick. Uh, we're on Twitter and we are on Instagram and we're about to get a website but I want to let you know that our Instagram is music speaks underscore podcasts and our Twitter is at music speaks underscore pod. So we're going to take a quick break. If you don't mind hanging around, we'll be right back. All right, and we're back with my friend Emily. And Emily, the first song on your playlist is the Ravel String Quartet in F major. Um, I want to mention this to you right away. Ravel's writing is so gratifying and so emotional. And the funny thing about this piece, the way it starts, is that he really gets into it right away. There's no like delay, you just start. Yeah. There's no pause buffet, there's no like, hold on wait a second okay here we go he's just like i'm so emotional let it all out here um i think he does it so well what do you like about the opening of this piece i i mean i think that you say it really well it's ravel does a fantastic job of creating an atmosphere and a mood right off the bat so there's no slow there's no slow introduction it's they're sort of immersed in the sound world right away so that's what I really love about, about the first movement. And the second movement just has such a catchy, uh, such a catchy opener where it's all pizzicato and it's this polyrhythmic, um, I guess, amalgamation. And it's just so much fun to listen to. And then the second movement, in particular, this is such a favorite piece of mine because of how Lizzie Simpkin talks about rhythm. Um, and so it's such a fond memory of her basically singing all the parts at once and like watching her turn into a rhythm machine where now every time I listen to Ravel I can't help but like hear Lizzie too and um that really reminds me of of just like the depth in which Ravel writes so sure. yeah the first movement absolutely gorgeous the second movement just has so much energy to it so those are near and dear mostly because of the people who play it, but also because it's just beautiful music. Right. And when you mention Lizzie Simpkin, you mean from Ithaca College, for those who do not know her, uh, cello professor at Ithaca College. And I want to ask you this next question. I'm sure you'd be able, able to perform this. What are the challenges that are involved within playing this piece with others? Mm, there are <laughs> so many. So, many. <laughs> so um with all this emotion that Ravel is, is so adept at just conveying, it means that the musicians have to all be on the same page about what the emotional journey is and the conception of what they want to convey to the audience. So just simply getting on the same page of what your, your tone colors are, the articulations that you're going to use, how much vibrato is it? Like, are you, are you going to purposefully match or are you going to decide not to? How much shimmer do you want in the sound? These are all musical questions that take a lot of planning. 
because if one person sticks out, then it, it pops the bubble and all of a sudden you're taken out of the movement. So getting everybody to have a cohesive vision, that's, that's the first uh, hurdle. And then the second one is the actual follow through of that. And you have to be so flexible and change all the time. So when you're playing Ravel, the sound is never consistent. Your bow is never in the same place. You're constantly changing your contact point. You're constantly changing your vibrato, your dynamics. You have to almost invent the music as you're, as you're playing it. And so that's the most gratifying, but also frustrating part about playing Ravel or, or Debussy uh, for that matter. So having the flexibility to change uh, if you need to, that's, that's a challenge. Right. And I think something interesting about this piece is his use of vernacular music and the use of early jazz influence in his music using like in, like you mentioned in the first movement you have this emotion right away and i think you sort of hear this minor pentatonic sound which i think is really interesting i think that's something he plays with a lot in his music because i think it's very expressive and some might say impressionistic um you know i wouldn't say so um i think it's interesting to point that out uh now, here's something I want to ask you. He is such a beautiful musician, artist. If you could sort of sit down with him and ask him a question about this piece, what would it be? I would, it's a silly question, but I would be really curious as to how, what his process was for actually committing the, what was in his head to paper. Because mm -hmm. that I, I would be fascinated by because a lot of his textures and sounds are sort of experimental. Um, and at the time it was, it was pretty dissonant music because it was just less tonal. Um, and so I, I would ask him how, how he was discovering those sounds or like for the cello, you know, how is he, how is he writing for the cello when I don't, Oh God, forgive me, music history professors of the past. I don't think that he was a cellist. So like, no, how he was is a he- a pianist, I think. Yeah. yeah. So how is, he, how is he making such accessible music to the musicians? Like who is he talking with? Who is he, who is he working with to, to make it happen? So it's a little bit more of the nitty gritty that I would ask Ravel about because that his, his vision, I think is something that is so beautiful and I just am curious about the process. Sure. You know, I would ask him, why don't you write for Brass Quintet? Because it would have been <laughs> amazing if he did at the time. Ooh, Brass Quintet by Ravel. That would be cool. Do you think I, he I would? would? I, you know what? Maybe not. I think he was very, like, very studious with like orchestral and chamber writing. Um, but... I, I digress. I would love to <laughs> do that, but I would love uh, to see what Ravel would think of of the 21st century technology that's available. Like, I wonder mm. if Ravel would be making some like lo-fi in his studio, <laughs> just like hanging, <laughs> or like if he like discovered loop pedals and did like whole whole pieces that are just like based on loops. I'd be really interested to see what Ravel would do with all of the interesting tech that we have now. Speaking of interesting tech and being modern, I think this next one goes to Hunter. 
Indeed. So I was unfamiliar with this next piece, and it's by Kernis, uh, and it's called uh, Musica Celeste. Oh, well, I don't know what language it's in, but Musica Celestis, I'll say. Um, sounds Latin to me. But um, being a more modern composer, it, you know, the work is clearly unconventional and yet has a very old, to me, seems a very old sentiment to it. Um, when I was listening to it, I don't know, the, the emotion, it didn't seem like, like it seemed right there. It had a new sound and yet in an older style seemed to put the emotion right out there. Whereas sometimes in modern music, you know, the, the emotion is there, but it's hidden beneath the composition style, whatever it happens to be. Um, you just have to know what to look for. So um, are you familiar with the composer uh, Nicholas Hooper? He's a soundtrack writer. I am, and he, he wrote the, I think it was the fifth Harry Potter soundtrack. Correct, very good. Um, yeah. Yeah, and when I was listening to this piece for some reason, it bore a striking resemblance to me to his work on specifically that fifth Harry Potter movie. So I'm glad that you uh, knew that off the top of your head. Um, clearly a very emotional work, like I said, and some heart-wrenching chords in there. Um, and personally, at like five minutes in, the, the style change um, is very striking. Uh, what, what's your connection to this piece? Why did you choose it? I chose this piece for, for a very similar reason to what you just said. Even though it's a, a modern, contemporary composition, it carries such emotional weight to it and mm -hmm. does, a, does a fantastic job of blending new and old. So... It almost feels like a a very romantic in interpretation of a contemporary uh, style. When I first heard this piece, there was a concert that was put on by Jeffrey Meyer, and it was an hour of continuous music oh. with visuals and um, with just like a little bit of not necessarily choreography, but it was like a, it was a program. I don't know how to describe this show because it was it was it was amazing. So Lizzie Simpkin played a Bach cello suite in between each each piece. And so there was a there was a story that connected the Bach to the next movement, back to the Bach, next piece, back to the Bach, another piece. And there were all of these visuals that went along with it. And I was so moved by this concert. And somewhere in the middle of it was was the Kernis. And the visual that went along with this one was just a color gradient. So the piece started out, I think it was like a pale blue or something like that. Uh -huh. And as the piece changed, the colors on screen changed with it. So it was constantly morphing into these different hues and shades. And it was such a simple and effective way to convey how the music was changing. It's almost so synesthetic. Exactly, yeah. So I loved that so much to be able to pair the visual with your aural and emotional sensation. That was, that was absolutely amazing. So I love this piece because of how it was introduced to me, uh -huh. but I also love it because after listening to it time and time again, I still feel the same like suspense and joy and everything in, in between. Um, so it's, it lasts for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. And I, I, have you gotten a chance to play it since you've heard it? Or is it just like 
it's fun to listen. Oh, it's nice to listen to. I have that connection. I don't know that I would want to play it. Love to play it sometime. Would you? I almost um, yeah. It's almost like the Barbara Adagio. It's almost like the modern version of the Barbara Adagio in the same way that it's paced and how it how it just slowly keeps building chord after chord with no real discernible melody. And it was originally a string quartet. So there's a string quartet oh. version of it. And um, that I would love to do someday, or even the, the, you know, the string orchestra version. Because it's just so satisfying to, to be part of a larger, to be part of a larger group and to make that music happen. So mm -hmm. I'd love to do it one day. And you know, there's almost something atmospheric about it. And I, maybe that goes along with, um, it probably fit very well with the environment you were describing when it was introduced you know, with the colors, you know, it's sort of, it, it just creates a mood, you know what I mean? And it, that mood is what adds to the, the gravitas of the song. And I don't know if that is a good way of describing it or not, because when I was listening to it, it was a very, um, like you said, a very emotional, you know, it's, it's emo it is emotive. Um, I don't know if it's emotional, but it is definitely emotive. Um, it feels very contemplative. It so, does, very. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like a meditation. And I find that when I'm listening to music that's written by, um, you know, like mid-century or earlier, my mind is so busy. And I'm yeah. like, I'm like tr listening for so many things, you know, it's, whether it's interpretation or trying to understand the harmony better or like latching onto form or whatever I can sort of like intellectually get from it, my brain turns off when yeah. I listen to the Kernis. And that freedom to release and just experience in the moment is really captivating. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's a good way of, of putting it. Cause you're right, some of the modern stuff is very busy. Not less good, just busy. Um, and speaking of, you know, a little bit, little bit earlier in time, but still just as, as good, I think. Um, Sean will take over the next one. So the next piece we're going to check out is the Schumann Quintet in E-flat. Uh, the instruments in this case, we have piano, we have two violins, a viola, and a cello. Um, so, Emily, when I started listening to this piece, I sort of wanted to try to find an adjective that would describe it in the best mm -hmm. way. And when I was listening to it, I thought it was very conversational-like, where you'd have these different instruments talking to each other. I didn't really think the piano had a big role in the first movement that I listened to, but I felt like the, the individual instruments added to a conversation. So I wanted to ask you, what, what would be an adjective that you could maybe describe this piece as? Mm. The adjective that I would use for this piece, oh gosh, I think I think operatic would be would be the best one, because like you said, there is so there is so much conversation between between the parts, and you know Schumann's his his two different personalities they come through the through the music constantly, so we always are getting you know this sort of down somber character versus the more elated excited manic character. Schumann, ten, Schumann tends to write in these, in these two different styles. And I find it to be like a vibrant piece. So this piece holds a lot of, of meaning for me because of the people 
who I played it with. Um, so my chamber musicians, they're like a big part of, of my love for, for this piece. And especially the grave movement, the, the slowest one, has such a range of desolation to like overflowing love and joy. And to have in one movement that emotional range is just spectacular. So it's, um, it's a piece that's very near and dear to my heart because of the people who I played it with and the things that I learned um, while playing it. And it was a really emotional time for me as well because our chamber coach at the time had died like later that year. Oh. So this was one of like the last pieces that I, that I worked on with like this brilliant musician. Um, and so, yeah, especially that, that second movement and just like, it just makes me think of, of him and what he must have been, what he must have been going through. So the, the quintet is as absolutely gorgeous. And if you've never listened to it before, like go, go sit down with a cup of coffee and, and hang out with it because it's really such a, a wonderful, wonderful work. Yeah. And, and just to echo what you said, please go listen to it. Um, I was going to mention this quickly that if you do want to go check out Emily's music, we will have a playlist attached to our podcast. So please go check that out after you listen to this podcast. Uh, and this piece is really beautiful. And I think something that I like about Schumann's writing is how personal it can be. He doesn't write well for trumpet. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. But I do really enjoy his softer side of his writing. I think it's very delicate. I think it's very personal. What do you sort of take away from his writing? To, to go off of what you said, like, yeah, it's very intimate. Um, I feel like it's very genuine. And for, in this piece in particular, I find that it's a clear window into who he was as a person. Um, it just feels personal, like there's a story and it's more than just creating a story on the page. It almost feels like I have no actual foundation that I'm basing this off of, disclaimer. But I feel like I'm getting to know Schumann so much through this piece. Um, like there's a Smetna's uh, of my life, his, his quartet. That's like another one where I feel like you get to know the composer and who he is as a person through his music. So those two pieces, they're, they're tied in that same way. Right. I think it's interesting because sometimes some people say music speaks. But <laughs> and there it, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Speaking of music and uh, going back to symphonies, uh, I'll give this next one to Hunter. Uh, so the next one is uh, Sibelius's Symphony, Symphony Number no. Five, and you know I've always been really partial to uh, the Northern European composers. I, the, their style is so different, and you know for the people listening, there there were many composition or a couple different composition styles in Europe that sort of segmented the way people wrote. So there was like the traditional Italian style which is sort of where modern Western music started. And then, um, you know, in the, the Germanic states, it sort of evolved and a branch broke off from there and it went up to Northern Europe. And the Scandinavian countries and the Northern Germanic countries uh, like Finland um, 
they all had this very, it's, I, th I find it in a unique style. I don't know if you would agree, but it's very, like you hear a piece and you're like, it, they're definitely from one of those Northern European countries. Um, and uh, is it the work or the composer in this case that made you choose this piece? Both, and there's such a there's such a common thread in why I enjoy music, and it's mm -hmm. it's because of the people, too. Um, I find that I'm not a, a very technical musician, mm -hmm. and like learning more about harmony is something that challenges me and something that that I have to work on constantly. But at the end of the day, what really makes me such such an excited musician is is like by the people that I play with or by the emotion that I get from pieces. Just why sometimes Baroque is, is very hard for me to, to get into. Yes. But anyways, um, Sibelius is such a compelling composer for, for so many reasons to me, but the biggest one is that he just takes like such huge risks. The whole first half of the first movement of his fifth symphony is arguably a movement on its own. It's this like precambrial soup <laughs> of, of chromaticism and a mm -hmm. whole orchestra doing that at their like softest softest dynamics and it's like a seven seven minute build maybe it's less than that but it feels like such a long time mm -hmm. that you're that you're left just floating and when I think of composers around Sibelius's time like I can't think of a lot of notable pieces that took risks like that to start a whole symphony with no movement with no motion, right. with no forward momentum. Um, so this piece I, I love because I love Sibelius's writing. And when I played this piece, it was my junior year, which was a really, um, a really sensitive time for me. So I had just gotten a diagnosis that I had some tumors in my in my head and they were on my eyes and so okay. when i was little i had i had lost vision in one eye and we didn't know why and it was like a like a 10-year journey to get this diagnosis in my junior year that like oh yeah you've got like tumors on your eyes and they're like they're closing them off so um so i spent the last half of my junior year wondering if i was going to be able to see again and that was really stressful <laughs> <laughs> Really stressful. I, I imagine so. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, uh, so like I would, I would go and I'd do my classes and I'd be in the practice room and like at least twice a day, I'd be like, oh, is this the last piece of music I'm going to look at? Or like, I wonder what the last piece of music is that I'm going to look at. And um, I had this operation scheduled, but we didn't, we didn't really know what's going to happen with it. And so we played this piece. It was the last, uh, it was the last cycle of the year. We played this piece and the last movement is just so heartbreakingly triumphant. Yeah. And, um, that, that just like really meant so much to me because I felt like, like I was just like crying every time we played it in rehearsal. Cause mm -hmm. I was like, this is how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> this music, it speaks to me. So, um, <laughs> So, like, the time in my life when this symphony entered was, was perfect. And we also had Larry Radcliffe, who's a conductor at Rice. He came and he worked with uh, conducting students and some conducting students from Ithaca, some from, you know, all over the country. And the way that he 
spoke about Sibelius just like, oh my God, tears, tears the whole time. So I was uh-huh. like sitting in the section crying and he's talking about Sibelius. I'm like, Emily, just hold it together. Hold it together. It's fine. And he was talking about how, you know, the people in Finland were just so grateful to Sibelius. They uh-huh. felt like he was their like national hero, kind of like yeah. the Verdi of, you know, Finland. And he was so emblematic to their, to their plight. And he was a, like such a champion for, for their people, you know, especially after, you know, they, they had their freedom from, from the Soviet Union. So, um, you know, Larry Bradcliffe, he's just talking about how ev- there were committees that wanted to honor Sibelius with, I can't remember if it was like a specific award or an honorary doctorate or I can't remember what that specific was, but there was a, a gesture of gratitude that was that was given to Sibelius and his reaction was like, no, I don't deserve that. Like, I'm just a person. And wow. like, there's nothing, there's nothing special about me. Like, I don't, I don't understand why you would be fawning over my work because it's just music. And it's what I do when I'm in my cabin away from people for, you know, like months at a time. Uh-huh. And that sentiment of Sibelius feeling like he wasn't special. He was just an ordinary person. And yet seeing the impact that he had on other people, that, that made me feel like, like I was less of a, of a speck in the greater sense of the universe. I was like, wait, no, 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 no. I'm going through this, through this time that's, that's stressful and emotional and unsure, but I still, can connect with the people around me. So when Larry Radcliffe was talking about Sibelius, it was, it felt like Larry Radcliffe was just talking to me. So that piece is just so near and dear for the finale, almost, mm-hmm. almost exclusively for the finale. Um, but yeah, the, the Sibelius is just such beautiful writing and it's so easy for anyone to connect with. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. And it's funny you mentioned the last movement because I have in my notes while I was listening to it, you know, just so that I check on my own thoughts. I was like, the last 10 minutes are just incredible. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, it has this very warm, and I wrote warm and grand. Um, and it does have that, that like, that triumphant, the, the, the warmth that comes with like people believing that they've succeeded and, and, um, I don't think anyone could call the the texture of it thin. I mean, it's very, <laughs> I mean, it's just so, I can't think of any other word other than lush. And I think that's very characteristic of the the composition style of that part of the world. Listen, a lot of the composers from like uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, or, and they're not well known. Like those composers yeah. not to be very well known in um, Western music because they were not I don't want to say not revolutionary because they were in their own way but they're, they're not studied um like they, they didn't do anything outstanding and yet the music they produced is so breathtaking yeah you know for for a variety of reasons from the harmonies to the orchestration to you know what I mean but it's not groundbreaking in the way that maybe um you know, either Mahler was or like Gershwin, you know, they happened to be composing at a time where people were looking for something different and they were holding on to the romantic style. And I think Sibelius 
like you said, the Finn, uh, the Finnish people thought he was a hero. And eventually people came to realize that. But if he himself didn't believe it, maybe that's why he sometimes gets a little forgotten. Because think about someone like Mozart, right? Like people thought he would, people certainly thought he was a hero. And he was like, yes, please tell me more. I know, <laughs> I know I am. Yeah. Exactly. He's like, yeah. please, I, yes, inflate my ego. <laughs> but yeah, there's something to be said for like, you need a little bit of, of self, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self-inflation. But I mean, sometimes that's hard for people, especially ones who are more introverted. And like the, the part about this symphony that I just love is how, how natural and organic it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember from, from this masterclass, Larry was talking about how when Sibelius was composing this, he was like by himself and it was like his little shack, his composing hut that he had. <laughs> and, um, you know, he would, he would look out on like these fjords and, and lakes and just he was surrounded by natural beauty. And the very last movement, you know, the main theme, da 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 it was meant to mimic um, the sweep of a bird of a bird's wings as it's oh. like flying. So like as the oh okay my cat's running across the <laughs> <laughs> I was like called we have a guest. Called it. Um, so you know as as the as the wings are going up and down, it, or as the baseline is going up and down, it's, it's mimicking this, this flight and motion of a bird. So like mm-hmm. that soaring victorious quality that's found in the fourth movement is like, it's, it has its roots in nature. Like that, that, like little details like that make me feel like I'm so immersed in the work. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, maybe that's something that comes from his somewhat introspective personality because it's not about him, you know what I mean? It's not about the work that he wrote, it's about perhaps observations he made about the world around him or his country or the people he knew, you know what I mean? So it's not centered around him, it's centered around, uh, or rather his writing is about things, it's not about him and writing the music. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense. I totally agree. Yeah, he's, he's an observer and he's, he's writing down what he's observing, whether it's about, you know, like the natural world or, or like the day-to-day of people's lives. That's why there's so much like folk roots in his, yes. in his writing. And it's captivating. It is. That's a good way of putting it, captivating. And speaking of someone else who's captivating, though perhaps in a different way, Sean? Well, we're going to talk about Mahler 4, but I wanted to mention quickly that um, my one uh, Sibelius moment was I got to play uh, Symphony Number no. 7 with Cornell, and someone had to mention to me, oh, hey, that's the one that, if you hear the software playing in Sibelius, that's the thing they hear the... And I was like... And for me, like... I'm not going to bring up trumpet again because I'll get very upset because again, this is not a great symphony for trumpet. I mean, for, <laughs> the, fifth, the fifth symphony is the seventh isn't, but it was nice to just sort of discern and sort of take a deep breath. And it was sort of nice to sort of take a look back at that. And I think and hopefully it's a good segue into introducing this next piece because it has such an interesting history. 
And this piece is actually performed within an hour, which is interesting because it makes it one of the shortest works of Mahler, which I don't even know why we have to say that because all of his works are long. Oh my God, yes. But because... It is so, but they are so amazing. This one, again, Emily, you picked another non-trumpet piece that's not very heavy for (laughs) that I'm talking about. Um, But this piece definitely has its moments. And the fourth movement in particular talks about a child's vision into what heaven looks like, which I think is pretty profound. Um, and I think we'll talk about that for hot in, in a minute, but I do want to get to the beginning of the piece because I think it's really interesting. When I listened to the entire symphony, I basically thought it was a dance. Like there were different parts of the mute, maybe not the fourth movement, but the first three for me felt like there were different dances. And I kind of liked that. The first one felt like you were in a ball and you were sort of dancing very gracefully. And I thought that was kind of cool. The second was a very like very maybe like a three four scherzo sort of feel, and I kind of like that. And um, and then the the third one was this very soft slow dance, but then erupts into this joyous sort of like crazy thing. I think that comes out there. Now let's sort of walk through each individual movement. Uh, what did you think about the the first movement? Because for me, I thought it was sort of like a, like walking, dancing through like a big ballroom. What would you say that felt like for you? I I love this whole symphony because yeah, it is a it is a story, but more than uh, a story within each movement, it really is. The whole first three movements are a lead up into the fourth, um, mm-hmm. into like what ascension is and what the afterlife could look like. So the first movement is. Um, I did this this great class with with Les Black, who's a theory professor at Ithaca, and we we talked a, a little bit about this piece. And um, the first movement is the boy in the in the natural world, in the living world. So um, like all of these all of these themes, in the beginning, those are like bells and pipers and birds, mm. and um, that's like the sound of a boy singing singing to himself and so there are all of these tender moments where there's a lullaby like interaction with like boy and his and his parents or being like sung to sleep and so this is really the lead up into the second movement which is something that's a little bit more sinister so there's the scordatura the violin that's tuned to like a different a different set rather than like your standard fifths and um, in the second movement, the, the violin is a representation of like ill intent or like the devil or, or someone trying to lure the boy away from like his, his innocence and his life on earth. And it's almost like it moves into a dream sequence. So the first, the first movement is very real to me with, with melodies to cling on to, with um, more folk elements to it, with a sing-song component and the second movement gets a little bit more serious and abstract and then the third the third movement is contemplation and then the fourth movement is a result of that contemplation right yeah. so the the symphony itself it's, it's very simple compared to, to other Mahler ones it's a small scale and it's a little bit more intimate 
to me in the subject matter that it's that it's trying to talk about. Right, right. I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. Um, and I want to mention a little bit of the text that the soprano sings at the end. Uh, the translation she says is, we enjoy heavenly pleasures and therefore we avoid the earthly stuff. No worldly tumult is to be heard in heaven. Olive in greatest peace, we lead angelic lives, yet have a merry time of it besides. We dance and we spring, we skip and we sing. St. Peter in heaven looks on. What do you sort of take away from that? I think that's like the perfect thing that you would tell a child. Like imagine, you know, you've got a little one that has um, like a terminal illness or like is, is hurt and they're, or like they tell you like I'm, they get their first real existential crisis and they're like, hey, I'm scared. Like what, what happens afterwards? Um, and that sounds like the kind of thing that you would tell, that you would tell a child, like, there's nothing up here that's going to hurt you. You're going to be okay. Any of the, you know, anything that's, that's hard here on earth and that's difficult right now, like, Hey, you're not going to have to worry about it. So, um, I think that it's a, a simple and very effective way to also, it's sung by a, a soprano, right? Which is like, like a motherly maternal figure. So to me, that just speaks to the the words that are being um, spoken. So it's a comforting movement and they're not dismissive of death, but just very reassuring. That's the cat launching herself <laughs> onto the table. <laughs> he was feeling right. it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting because there are not a lot of composers that address that in their, their works, like talking about kids dying. He's oh, like, he also did a, was it, he did a song cycle, uh, Kindertoten oh, there it is, yep, Kindertotenlieden, yeah. which is about that, so maybe he was just a little bit more morbid. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting yeah. to think about it that way, too, I, he's such an interesting composer because there's really no sound like him, I mean, he really does create his own sound. I think it's really quite iconic. I think maybe he's like the first composer where you can be like, oh, that's Mahler. Over the top, super loud, crazy. I think it's perfectly Mahler. Speaking of perfectly, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, uh, I'm going to give uh, Emily more chance to talk about some non-classical music. So you don't want to miss that. And we'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. Uh, so now we're going to get into Emily's non-classical choices. Uh, the first one being, um, it's, well, it's called Broken Chair by Chris and Thomas. And I'll be honest, I don't know any of your picks. So I, I was unfamiliar with most of what you chose, this being one of them. And it's clearly more of the more on the countryside, and it has a very simple accompaniment, which I think is pretty cool. The two men have a very distinct sound. Their voices, the, the timbre is very, uh, not unusual in a bad way, but it, it is, for lack of a better word, distinct. 
Is that why you picked it? Yeah, it's a, it's a piece that I discovered when I was younger. So it's, I was still in high school. And they're two, they're two brothers. And so the blend of their voices is mm -hmm. incredible. So the blend of the two of them singing together is so much fun to listen to. And even though it's sort of a melancholy song, I find it um, sort of comforting in a way. So the simple accompaniment, the soft way that they sing, it's really relaxing. And um, yeah, it's just like, it's just a good listen. It's like when I'm sitting outside and I'm like reading, like that's the kind of music that I want to listen to. Or like if you imagine a, a like, uh, silly like Wes Anderson style movie like this would be the end credits maybe <laughs> as like <laughs> as like you know they're like driving away or, or something like that mm -hmm. so uh it's like even though it's a little a little melancholic it it also has a little bit of whimsy in it and it feels just like a little bit lighter mm -hmm. and would you say then that you not not like, but would you say you have an affinity for country music or is it their sound in particular that you like? It's their sound in particular because I don't like country music. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I had to figure out how to work. Yeah, I didn't want to be no, like, I really don't like country music. It drives me insane. So this I, I don't think I'd put it in the in the country category. I think it's more of like a like a folk, folk like singer yeah. songwriter one. Um because it's just like a story, it's a storytelling, uh -huh. telling one. Not that that doesn't happen in country, but I just don't like country. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's such a broad umbrella and we always joke because my uncle, he really liked, um, I mean, he did like country, but he liked old Western kind of country. And oh, wow. my, my, yeah, and my sister always jokes, she's like, but it's all the same. My dog died or I ran over him with the truck, the, the girl <laughs> left and got the house and you know, I drank myself to oblivion. So this is, it's different than that. It's not that kind of message. So I can see like, it's like you said, it's a clear distinction and it's not that kind of country. Um, it is more folk, which I think is more, I don't want to say more pleasant because I'm sure there are people who find country pleasant, um, but it is more, I'm going to call it harmonically pleasant. <laughs> I, I don't know any other way to say it. It's sort of, you know, to be fair, it kind of does like straddle the two worlds a little bit. Like I can see how you could call it like country or folk, but like no matter what, it's it's just like easy, it's easy to listen to. It is, um, it's very easy. Yeah, so sorry. Sorry for people who really <laughs> like country. <laughs> <laughs> Did not um, so, mean to be offensive there. Oh, believe me, I don't, I, I, people have said worse, I'm sure. Um, so then the next song, we went through that one very quickly, um, but the next song is very different, uh, to you, Sean. Sure. Uh, so Emily, I have to mention, uh, my girlfriend, Mimi, I was talking to her about this and she's like, I'm so excited to have Emily on the show. And then she's like, I can, I, I think I can name one of the songs she's going to put on her list. And she goes, is it the fretless? And I was like, yes, yeah. it is. And she, and she goes, of course, of course she chose this song. And I'm so excited to talk about this because I know this is one of your favorite bands. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about this a lot. So how would you describe the sound that they create in this? So the fretless is, um, 
They're a band that's based in Canada. I believe they're in Vancouver. And they're um, sort of like contemporary, contemporary bluegrass or like, they're like a fusion of, of bluegrass and like traditional fiddle and almost like they're a little jazzy too. So uh, they're, they're such a versatile group. They go from playing like some really old tunes and some in very like classic style to adding a little bit more of a modern flair. And they are just so much fun to listen to. Um, I think if I could like be a groupie for any one, uh, you know, like band, it would be, it would be them. If they were like, Emily, we just need you to be on the road and get us coffee all the time. I'd be like, yes, I am leaving these kids. I am leaving Halifax. Like I'm with you. I'm going. Cause they're just like, Oh God, they're great. They're such a great group. Mm. So the fretless have a, have, I think a very unique sound, but it's one that's, I guess like sort of, it's sort of like a universal sound. Like it's very easy mm. to get into. Sure. Sure. Nice. I think it's something, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, when I listened to this, I basically thought this maybe was a version of Irish step dance in a way. But <laughs> I know it's terrible. Um, have you ever done anything like like that? Like any kind of dance like that before? I haven't done Irish step before, but I want to. It's something that I want to. Um, there's the canyon. It's something that I want to um, to get into. But I'm not a the most coordinated person in the world. But I think that like ah. Whatever you don't always have to be perfect at the things that you're that you're dabbling in. So you might as well try. Sure, so yeah. it's definitely percussive. So the fretless, even though they don't have a drum set, even though they don't have like a, a traditional rhythm section, the way that they play, the the bowings that they that they choose, the rhythms that they choose, like the chopping that they that they do with the string parts, like they make their own rhythm section, and that's what makes it like real really toe tapping music to listen to right i don't want to mention something really interesting about this i just something that i'm so fascinated by is the quick switches between the six eight time feel and the three four ad they just added to it's so it's so compelling it's, it's a like, wild mm, transition mm, 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 mm. it's it's so it yeah. feels so good to listen to do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah so this is for is it dirty harry that, that you oh to? no no when i listen to you know what yes that is yes that is correct dirty harry yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so so dirty harry has um has this this uh time change that happens really abruptly and um it's not it's not a smooth transition when i when i listened to it for the first time uh back in the day when we had like cassette tapes it reminded me of <laughs> It reminded me of when, um, like, there's like a skip or something, and it sort of like, and it sort of takes a second to really click into place, and then like, boom! All of a sudden, you're in your your new song or whatever, and um, and so they do that transition without making it feel awkward, but it's definitely jarring because all of a sudden the mood changes in, in like two bars, and right. they just like flip the whole the whole set on its side, so. Yeah, it's a really interesting transition because it is elegant, but it's not uh, smooth, <laughs> and it's not uh, it's it's definitely not organic feeling at all. Like there's there's really not a long drawn out transition to make you 
sort of forget that you were in six, eight, and now all of a sudden you're in three, four. Right, right. And you did that in your recital too. You switched from classical to moved into sort of this genre of music. Um, what was that like? That was a lot of fun. Um, so I got in touch with the band and I asked if they could send me some sheet music because I wasn't very comfortable learning uh, by ear and I'm not very comfortable playing fiddle music in general. It's just something I don't really know much about, but it's something that I've always been really interested in. Or, and I've had friends who have really inspired me to just like go for it and to dive into this world. And um, so it was fun to go back and forth in a recital. And it was also really challenging to be presenting something that you're that you're not the most comfortable or fluid with. Um, I feel like, especially because of the weight that surrounds a recital, the idea is that you're supposed to be showing your best. And so it does feel a little uncomfortable to be showing something where you're like, oh, is this actually my best? Um, but you know, that's your, that's your classical brain getting in the way. What really matters is that like you're making beautiful music with beautiful people and you're like sharing that moment with others. So in a way, I think that playing fiddle music in between, experimenting with different styles and, and breaking it up, uh, a couple of things happened. One, it didn't diminish the, the meaning of that fiddle music. So often in recitals, we save the fun thing. Uh, you can't see my air quotes, but fun thing, air quotes, <laughs> for, for last. And that not only diminishes this like extra project that you're maybe passionate about, but it also means that like, it takes away from the stuff that you've done before because you're separating your, your musical expertise. And so when I was thinking about programming, I was like, I don't just want to do a fiddle set at the end. I want to have it be in between because they're two important parts of my musical personality or two important parts of my musical interest. So I wanted to show that this alternative style is just as rewarding and deserving of its own time as the things that that are more standard and in the classical canon of repertoire. So it was a lot was... of fun to dive into. Oh my gosh. And the yeah, people I think... who I was playing with, so sweet, so kind. Right. Like they all knew what they were doing and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so <laughs> like I think 80% of our rehearsals was them teaching me how to play fiddle music. <laughs> and um, like I gave them a bottle of wine each at the end, but like I really should have given them like a crate because they were really patient <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. And, it, and it turned out amazing. I was so glad to oh, be there you. as a friend and as a supporter of your music. Um, I do want to get to the next song. I want to get let Hunter talk about this one. I'm not sure where this one comes from, but I will let him talk about it. <laughs> so that's going to be one of my questions um, because I had the same question. But the next song is, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but it's Bright Whites by Kishi Bashi. Is that right? Yeah, that's totally it. All right. And... Uh, it definitely, like, that when I heard it, I'm like, oh, this would definitely be in, like, a coming-of-age indie film. Um, mm -hmm. It just has that very, you know, that folk influence, yet somewhat pop uh, sound to it, where you're like, this is definitely, I could see it being all about teenagers. Um, yeah. How did you come across this artist? Because he's obviously not something you'd just hear on the radio. I listen to a lot of Andrew Bird. Um, I love Andrew Bird. I 
love the way that he writes and is able to come up with uh, such a variety of textures for the violin. He uses a lot of loop pedals um, and he does like some funny tuning on his violin to help him get like those bass notes. And that's something that I really admire, being able to turn the violin into like it's, it's your one-man band. And so as I was listening to Andrew Bird, I was thinking about like, oh, I wonder if there are other people that do things like this because there have to be. Um, mm -hmm. So I found Kishibashi and like a very a very similar artist but with a slightly different twist so you're you're totally right indie coming of age just like dripping with uh just like earnestness is this piece mm -hmm. and it's just like a ton of fun to listen to and and it's a party and even when you listen to him play it just by himself on his violin he's able to convey that same emotion and still and still do all of these like rhythmic and melodic things with his instrument when it's when it's just him uh -huh. so it's it's a very fun song to listen to it's like like when you're driving on a sunny day windows down and it's like volumes cranked up and that's just like what you're driving to mm -hmm. so this is like a, a summer favorite of mine because it just reminds me of like the joy of of being able to you know like be outside and be surrounded by loved ones or like when you're a kid and like finding delight in like small in small things or like little little tiny tiny moments so it's a piece that helps to remind me to like stay present and to just like appreciate what's around me for like three minutes so it's a very mm -hmm. very fun piece like if you want if you want to smile highly recommend just going to listen to it yeah it is that kind of song where it's just sort of like i don't want to say there's no thought to it because obviously you know a lot of creative thought went into it but it is like you said you could be driving and you know your mind is very free and you don't have to think a lot about it even though there is quite a bit of depth to it, it it's it is a, a uh, like a release piece you know what i mean it's it's not introspective as much as perhaps say, I don't know, Sibelius was. Yeah. It reminds me to, um, to embrace my like inner joy a little mm -hmm. bit more. Um, so especially now with, with COVID and things are like pretty heavy, like we're craving, at least I'm craving a lot of human interaction. I'm mm -hmm. really, really missing people. Um, so this piece makes me like, feel like a kid and it makes me sort of like look at the world like I did when I was a kid where just like everything is interesting uh -huh. and worthy of to be like like explored uh -huh. that's it's important and especially in you know these times that we're living in I always wonder if people hear this like years from now they're gonna be like what are they talking about <laughs> <laughs> they're like they're like it couldn't have been as bad as that right and you're like no it was pretty no, bad it was pretty bad it, was, it sucked <laughs> <laughs> yeah would not recommend no I give 2020 one out of five stars yeah <laughs> more like zero yeah. out of five stars exactly yeah. zero <laughs> um Definitely. so speaking of because you mentioned like summertime your next song has a connection at least by title to that as well. So Sean, take it away. Sure. So we have just got into August, but now we're going to talk about late July 
uh, the song. Uh, hopefully that was a nice smooth transition. That was beautiful, uh, Sean. <laughs> gorgeous. Gorgeous, honey. Darling. The, the artist in question we're going to talk about is Shaky Graves, the song Late July. Um, I love the groove of this piece. I think it's so cool. There's a moment, Emily, that I thought immediately was going to push into like hard rock, but then it just settles back into the nice groove that it was sort of like into, you know. Um, what do you like about this piece? If you listen to it on um, on YouTube and you just like find his video, he's like sitting on like a like a stool, I think, and he's got like this, this suitcase in front of him, and the suitcase has like a little kick drum and a tambourine and I think something else, and he spends the first I think it's three or four minutes just like talking, so he's like noodling on his guitar a little bit. But he's he's just talking about the story of like how he got the name Shaky Graves and like okay here's like we just decided that it was gonna stick, and so it's like a, a one man band and I love the storytelling component that even comes before the song. Mm. So his um, the way that he tells stories is really captivating. I find that his voice is is very unique, and like you said the the groove and the pacing is just so good because you expect that it's going to explode into something bigger than it is and then it just like dials it right back and for some reason that's satisfying it really shouldn't be but um i love the groove i love the sound of his voice and i love how like it's so easy to sing along and then you feel like you're singing with shaky graves and you know this friend who's who's sitting five feet away from you and like you're just like jamming together so like, you know, while I'm doing dishes or I'm doing stuff around the house, like I'm singing with Shaky Graves and it's awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, he's, um, he's a great storyteller, really mm. great storyteller. He does a, a session on audio tree that's really fun to listen to because he does more talking there. And mm. um, he has a skill that I, that I'm really envious of. He's really good at small talk. Like, Holy heck, he's really, really good at it. That is <laughs> and, a skill. Um, it is. And so he he takes these moments of just like, I don't know if I can swear, but like shooting the S. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if they're... It's people. okay. You can say shit on my podcast. It's shooting the shit. There it is. <laughs> Duh, let go. So, <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm just like choking over here. She's so overwhelmed so, she choked. <laughs> exactly. So he's just like talking and, and chatting with this host. And I just want to listen to him talk forever. Like mm. he doesn't even have to sing, but he's just like a, an interesting person to listen to speak. And um, like going along with that vein of, of just like relaxed, easy going. I feel just so relaxed listening to him sing. So Shaky Grimes, he's a fun one. He's got some great music. You got to watch out for Emily Hunter. She's going to find you and talk to you about all this extra, st- like all the, uh, you were talking about um, all this small talk, Hunter. You better watch out. She's going <laughs> to kick you out. Cause she was like, Two yes, he is. He's great at it. I want to mention this quickly that the lyrics for this is very interesting. I do want to talk to you about it because he used the word gold digger a lot in this song. Um, he says, oh yeah, well, gold digger took my money, dipped my heart in hands and honey. Old snake lady stole my savings, told gold digger she was having my babies. 
<laughs> do you find that offensive? Do you sort of feel like just out of question? What do you, what do you yeah. what do you sort of take away from the message of what he's trying to say? I am in no way like qualified. I feel to to like really have an opinion worth listening to on this. Um, so I. I have to be honest, I feel like when he's like speaking and he's using that language, because it's like more in the folk country vein, and I think he's hearkening back to like when like like older times, it is sort of like a gray it is a gray area. I don't know. No, I, I mean, I, when I, when the first time I heard that, I was like, maybe is he trying to talk about a different song? Like, I think there's that, you know, that, um, what's, what's that song? That's that uh, Kanye song that, that he says, Gold Digger. Um, I can't remember what he was saying, but I, I had sort of used that as like a, that's like my, my, like my, I go to, I think about that when that ever, that word comes up. Maybe yeah. not in sort of derogatory word, but because um, I, I, when he said it, I was sort of like, what? but I mean, I understand the context of the song. Like he's, he's trying to talk about like, lo- like losing things. He's, he's being, you know, you know, he's being treated wrong, but I don't think he means to say it like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I just, the thing that I'm not sure of is like, I don't know like I don't have like I'm white I don't have the experience I don't have like the like it's not a word that I use or that I in my neighborhood and like my my scope of of family and like I don't use it in my vocabulary and like I haven't thought about the context behind it so like like you were saying, I don't know if it actually is a derogatory term or not. I'm not sure if it's a word that is used more often um, with like black and, um, you know, like an indigenous like singers and songwriters. I don't know if it's something that is just like was phased out of white singers and songwriters, but like, you know, it's been there for a while. I'm just not sure. So I haven't thought about it before, but you've you've brought up a good point and it's something that like i will go look into today to like just see what the what the history is behind it because mm-hmm. like my my knee-jerk reaction is that like it's not meant in a, in a derogatory way um but if it is um then yeah that's something that like i want to i want to think about well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't want to get too sticky with the the subject matter, but I did want to bring it up. No, you're fine. Real quick, um, I'm gonna let Hunter take over the last song we got in this section. All right. So the the last song in this section is "The Tallest Man on Earth" by the well, is it by the Gardener or is the Gardener the song? Gardener is the song, and then "The Tallest Man on Earth" is the artist. Hotel. So okay. I, I I wasn't sure because when I was listening to the song. I was, it was written exactly the same way it's written here. And I'm like, I can't tell which the person is. Um, He has a very unusual voice. It's, it reminds me of a very old fashioned, like, that's the word I'm looking for. Not Appalachian singer, but like, it, it is a very old school sound. 
Um, and uh, I just was curious as to whether or not the, his voice was compelling to you for that reason, or did you just happen to like the song when you heard it? So I had discovered, well, I didn't discover, I mean, like he's had his music out forever. But when I was, when I was first introduced to um, The Tallest Man on Earth, I really hated his voice. And I was yeah. like, I don't understand why anybody would listen to this. This is horrible. <laughs> it's grating and it's annoying and it's loud and it goes right into my eardrums. And I can't remember what it was that prompted me to just like keep listening to it to like sort of like try it again. But I found that the more I listened to, to The Tallest Man on Earth, the more I like really cherish and love his sound. Mm -hmm. So it now has grown on me and I'm really fond of it. I think that there's a danger in like not just, not just folk or pop or, or like country or rock or hip hop, like across all genres, there's a, there's a danger that to make it marketable, it has to have like a certain quality. It has to have a certain sound in uh -huh. order to be successful. You have to, you have to, um, you have to be, you have to fit inside a certain mold, whether that's yeah. like aesthetically, uh, how you present yourself or the kind of music that you write or even the timbre of your voice. And so when I initially listened to him and I, and I found it so grating, that was my first thought. But my second thought was like, wow, like how, how bold to commit to a sound that's different and to work with what you have and to make it its, its own unique, unique thing. So I really commend him for how he sings and his guitar playing is incredible. He is a phenomenal guitar player. And um, so he's similarly a storyteller. So The Gardener is a, is a great example. It's like four or five minutes and, um, and it tells a story and it's, it's up to interpretation what that story is, is really getting at. But the fact that you have to like think about it, uh -huh. I really love. Um, he doesn't waste words. So each word is, is intentional. His voice is intentional. And I find that there's a lot of care and thought in the way that he writes songs. So he's a, he's a very good, good listen. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what you said about voice particularly is important because, um, you know, we live in a, in a multimedia age. So it was, it's not common, it, it's not uncommon for someone's success to also be defined not just by, you know, by their voice, but also by their visual aesthetic. Um, but even going back years, you know, some of the most famous people in the music industry have been people with really unusual voices. You know, if you think about um, some of the big names of distinct voices, you have Louis Armstrong, who had a very unique voice. You have, uh, I don't know if you know Carol Channing. I don't actually. No, she was the original Hello Dolly on Broadway, and she was... Um, someone who I think you would react to the same way you initially reacted to this guy. Because she, ha she has this kind of really screechy voice, you know, very like, uh, 
I can't even describe it. It's like a gravelly yet nasally woman's voice. And I, I encourage you to go listen to her, but she's the kind of person who, when you hear her, you're like, oh dear God, who would ever sit here and listen to her? Mm -hmm. um, but after a while, you start to realize that she has a great control of her voice and a very good singer, but her voice is so strange. Like, yeah. it's just bizarre. And even someone like Ethel Merman, who was you know one of the biggest names of the stage for years, did not have yeah. a conventional female singing voice. Um, or even someone like, I mean, they weren't a pop star, but like Nathan Lane, mm -hmm. who was, you know, he has a very strange voice, but I, there's something compelling about it. I, at least I think so. Um, so I think that sometimes the unusual voices, like you said, can grow on you in a way that makes them more compelling than if was a regular, I'll say quote unquote, and no one else, like you, no one else can see my air quotes at the moment, but a regular <laughs> voice. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. There's, um, and I think there's, there's this belief that, you know, there's a threshold that you have to get to, and then, then you can show people who you really are and what you, mm -hmm. what you're into. Like Taylor Swift just did that. Like she just, uh, she just released an album that's like more on the folk end of things. I have to, I have to go listen to it. Like, I'm not a particular Taylor Swift fan at all, but like, I like would have loved to have heard like maybe some of her like folk roots or like her storytelling roots in like earlier, earlier things. Um, uh, like, I don't think that you have to fit into a mold, make it, and then you have permission to be yourself. Uh -huh. I think that if you just are genuine, and if you find your voice and you find your style and you find the things that work for you and you work on accentuating that and really drawing to your strengths, then you're going to, they're going to be successful no matter, no matter what you do. Uh -huh. But especially for, for artists, it's a, it's a fine line to walk. And like, that's, that's just in like the, the pop music world. I feel like classical music is a whole other, that's like a whole Beast. other can of worms to open up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, definitely they're both very competitive worlds and they're both very they both have i think like a very large uh, audience of purists who are very picky about what they consume and if you don't quite fit that mold at first it it could very much be an impediment to your career even though we know it shouldn't be an impediment because people should like you for whatever your particular style is whether it's very unorthodox or whether it does happen to fit the mold well you know what i mean but the music business is a is a cruel and unforgiving world <laughs> yeah well like the pendulum it's always it's always swinging so like you know you have um, I'm gonna yes. very violin, very violin centered because like I am a violinist, but you know, like we have like the greats, another set of air quotes. They're like, I love and respect them dearly, like, like Perlman and, and Chrysler and Heifetz and, you know, like all of these revered musicians. And when we listen to recordings of them, like if we put that recording in an audition, no one would want them in their orchestra or like right. no one would want to play with them because they just play with uh, such a, such a sense of self. Yeah. And um, so like that was, that was one side of the pendulum. And, and now I think we're like really heavy into the, 
into the matching style and historical viewpoint and making sure that we're able to fit into a mold and we're able to be compatible with other musicians, which does have its, its strengths. But the weakness is that, you know, like it's a, it's a standard that is high, but it also bars a lot of voices from being, from being heard and voices that maybe we should be hearing more of because I respect Beethoven as much as like the next person. But if I can say something like sort of controversial, I'm kind of glad that COVID happened and it canceled so many seasons because I swear to God, if I had to hear more orchestras playing Beethoven for his 250 year anniversary, yeah. like, <laughs> holy shit, there's so much other music out there. Yeah. There's like, there's so much else. So, um, you know, on a, the end of the tangent, I think that like who we are as, as classical musicians, as individuals, we bring our own set of set of strengths. And there is so much music that can fit your set of strengths. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my two cents on, uh, on classical musicians and fitting that mold, because I find it to be really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad I you said that. I understand why it's there. And I do respect these like high caliber musicians who have been playing, you know, for years and years and years and are at the top of their game and play with such like sensitivity and awareness. And I'm like craving a bit of that personal touch again. Mm -hmm. No, I'm glad you said, I'm glad you said it because, you know, while, while it might be something like controversial, it doesn't mean other people aren't thinking it. You know what I mean? I feel like a lot of times we revere people because they are commonly revered, but you know, maybe everyone else deserves their turn as well. Yeah. And like, no one's going to forget Beethoven. That's, I mean, like, that's just, that's and not going to happen. No, I think that's <laughs> worth saying. Yeah. No. So no one's, no right. one's going to forget him. So. It's like going. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You go ahead. Oh, no. I, I was going to say, that's like going to art school and saying like, there's Il Davide, you know, David. And we're like, he's great, but we're not going to work on him anymore because we've done that. It's, it's like, we're not going to forget, like you said, we're not going to forget he's there, but there are other people worth studying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but with that in mind now, you have three honorable mentions that after the break, we're going to just quickly uh, talk about because obviously they mean something to you because they are honorable mentions. So we'll take a quick break and then stick with us and we'll be right back. So now we have our three honorable mentions uh, for, uh, I'm like babbling here. We have our three honorable mentions for Emily's playlist. And the first one is an interesting piece because it's called, I actually don't know how to say it. I, I assume it's French. Is it Passepin? I, I don't know how to say it. Um. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're close. I mean, I don't really speak French either, but like, I think it's like, uh, uh, Pacipede or something like Pacipede. that. Pacipede. Okay. That makes sense. I, I'm not the authority on that one. One day I'll learn I don't know. French. My sister, she took French. I could ask her, but I didn't think of it. Um, 
<laughs> so it's by the Punch Brothers, and it's a very different but a cool arrangement. In the video that I watched, they mentioned that it was a Debussy piano piece that they arranged for their group, which was like a, a five-person group of guitar, violin or fiddle, bass, banjo, mandolin. Um, and how did you happen across this song? I really enjoy the Punch Brothers. Um, so I listened to the Punch Brothers, and this is one of my one of my favorite tracks of theirs because it is like a perfect marriage of like my classical world that I put a lot of my like a lot of my identity comes from who I am as a classical musician, but it also marries that like pure enjoyment of like folk music and different sounds. So it puts mm -hmm. those it puts those two together. Um, so it's yeah a great arrangement of this little little piano character piece. And I find that, like, you know, Ravel did his orchestration of pictures at an exhibition. Mm. And, like, that, to me, yeah. enhanced the work so much because you have so many timbres to play with and instrument colors. And I find that the same is true here, where on its own, it's a great work played at, played at the piano. And there's just a different, um, there's like a, there are different sides of it that are, that are brought out by having different instruments be in charge of you know, different, different sections. So being able to make more color changes, which is so present in Debussy anyway, so it's accentuating what's, what's already there in his music, is, um, it's captivating, and it's fun to listen to, and it's like little, like, like little ants or insects or like little, little fish, like all like swimming in and around each other, and it feels like a whole, like, organism or like little environment that you're watching or listening to but like the way that the punch brothers like weave these different instruments between each other is fantastic all right i i i, I always liked my god what is going on with me i feel like i'm having a stroke um the way that people take piano pieces and are really able to orchestrate them for any other type of group. Like you said, uh, Ravel did it for pictures at an exhibition, which was a piano piece. They do it for DWC here. I think it takes one, a lot of skill to be able to do that. And two, I really like exactly what you said, the way to incorporate the colors of the other instruments in a piece that ordinarily would have been one instrument, which does have, a, you know, it, it, it can produce many colors, but it is in itself one timbre. Um, I think is a very, very cool way of giving another perspective on a piece. Can you think of anything else off the top of your head that does that? Mm. I can't, I can't think of anything off of, off of the top of my head. And the, the thing that I also really respect, really respect about this arrangement that the Punch Brothers did is that they took a risk using instruments that have a harder time sustaining. Yes. So I think uh, like they use the violin and the bass very sparingly. Mm -hmm. So that makes like those moments a little bit more meaningful. Um, so I think that the way that they chose to change the instrumentation around really like highlights the, the core to this piece that it's, that it is like flitting and quick and like a little a little manic sounding so i can't think of any pieces off the top of my head 
that do something like that. But I'll, I'll look into that because I'm sure there are others. Oh yeah, I mean, have to be. I mean, I, I did it a couple times. I teach at a band camp in the summer, which obviously didn't happen this year. But um, I've taken a couple of piano pieces and arranged them for like a clarinet ensemble, which, uh, you know, it's difficult because you're, you're working in a limited range. But uh, I don't know, I think it's really cool to be able to do that. And I, I certainly don't do it well. I mean, I'm putting that out there. I, I'm amateur at it, but I do think it's a, it's a neat skill. And, it's almost uh, like a, it's almost like a logic exercise when very. you're, when you're looking at what the piano part is, and you're trying to imagine what the other, what the other inst instruments are going to be, or like when you're breaking down the melody, and you know, is it really one melody, or is it actually? two voices that are speaking at the same time and you know what two voices are they so mm -hmm. yeah this like re-instrumentation does feel a little bit like a like a puzzle and there's certainly a very creative aspect to it um but yeah it almost it almost feels like a mathematical like a little bit more uh organized way to create music yes very i agree very mathematical and they say actually, I don't know how true this is, but they say that the part of the brain that controls music is linked to the part of the brain that controls math. And musicians often have a good ability to work with numbers because they have a, a sense of like spatial awareness and like geometry they're especially good at because they can, we're good at maneuvering things in our head because we're so constantly looking at notes. Um, and not just notes, but the movement of notes. So that visual aspect is supposedly connected to it. Um, but I digress. So that, yeah, arrangers are great, I think is what we got out of this. Yeah, it's a, it's a really so, uh, unique skill to, that I respect a ton. Yeah. Sorry if, I, sorry if I cut you off. There was like a lag. Oh, I didn't know good. if you, you didn't look like you were talking. You were sort of like this frozen face. Um, <laughs> Go technology. But moving on to your second honorable mention, Sean, take it away. The next song you got is a song called Headlifter by Project Smock. Again, interesting name there. Uh, when was the first time you heard this song? This was a really recent one. This was maybe two months ago, two or three months ago. And uh, it's an Irish group. And it's like, they're a young, they're a young group. And kind of like how the fretless is a modern interpretation of like bluegrass and jazz. Um, this group, Project Smock, they do like modern interpretations and like new, brand new tunes and creations that are in the Irish tradition. So uh, they're fun, they're rhythmic, and it like rejuvenates that tradition. So it's it's fun to listen to because it is something that sounds very familiar, but is still really exciting. Sure. And it's funny you mentioned Irish. I think it's the, it's so interesting to listen to the, I think it's a sort of a flute. Maybe it's a pan flute. Maybe it's a, it's it's a tin, tin whistle. whistle. It's a tin whistle. I yeah. think it's interesting because it has that wisp like quality in the beginning of it. Um, I mean, I want to ask you this. I really liked the sound that it had in the beginning. What, what do you like about it? But that's like, not too cool. Oh yeah, I like the the timbre of the tin whistle. It's it's so clear, which is really nice, and it's just the lilt of the piece. It has a very uh, a very sing songy lilt, mm. and it's 
really clean. Sometimes, sometimes you listen to like Irish or Scottish or, or any kind of fiddling. And there's like so much extra stuff that's been put on top of it that you've lost what the actual, what the, what the real tune is or what the, what the, what the skeleton is. And I think that this piece does a great job of setting that skeleton in the very beginning and then slowly piecing more things onto it to make it more interesting. So I found that the pacing of this piece is, is really wonderful to listen to. And if you've, um, I believe they have a video of, I don't, I wonder if it's on YouTube, but they did a video of um, like a live distance performance of it where they have all of the their band members and you see their like little screens and they're, they're all playing together. And watching the step players move is incredible. Their feet do some silly things. <laughs> I have no idea how, how they like make the rhythms that they do. It's like, it's the most amazing thing. So yeah, their, their step players are really, are really phenomenal to watch. And um, they even have like pieces that are in the album as well that use like electronics. And it's almost like a weird combo, but think like synth meets Irish, like traditional mm. Irish. And it's, <laughs> it's weird. Like, don't get me wrong. It's definitely strange, but it's like, I commend you because you've put these two things together and somehow it, it really works. So this album, uh, Bayview has, has a lot of, a lot of different styles in it, but Headlifter in particular is one that's just really fun to listen to. That's sort of a theme. I love to listen to music. That's just like, gets me out of my own, gets me out of my own head. Right. And it's funny that Hunter brought up the word mathematical because I think especially Irish music can be quite mathematical too because I think there's definitely like a form of playing because like we mentioned in the fretlist, they have this six, eight, three, four sort of feel sometimes. And it pops up here too in that way too, where you're sort of like following along. And it's so cool how they easily transition from one section to another. I think it's so cool. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I think you, I think you really hit the nail on the head. They, they do a lot of hemiolas and, and playing around with time um, in a way that's, that's really gentle, but you are aware that the, that the time is different. So the groove is pretty consistently changing. And, um, you know, for the people who are, who are playing live with the band, like you said, like the, the mathematical nature to it, it's just like in, in jazz where you just, you have to be. So I find it so impressive that uh, these musicians are able to create and be flexible, but also keep track of, of where time is and be cognizant mm -hmm. of each other. So yeah, it's a very, when you look at it, super simple song, just like eight bar phrases, nothing too wacky with the harmony, but it's all of those personal touches that coalesce into, into a really uh, meaningful and uh, I, I've said it quite a bit in this podcast, but earnest music. It's very genuine music. And speaking of wacky and awesome time signatures, I will give the last one to Hunter. That could be used to describe the next song or it could be describing me. I don't know. Um, so the next song that, or the, the, your third honorable mention is Black Angels by George Crumb. And I want to preface it with Sean warned me about the piece prior to listening to it. And he was like, just so you know, you're not gonna like it. And I was like, oh, that's a good way to start it off. 
Um, so before I talk about the actual piece, before we discuss it, what made you pick it? Oh, because I've played it before. And it was such a, it was um, such a deep learning experience. Mm -hmm. And um, so in the grand scheme of things, George Crumb, he's, yeah, he's like groundbreaking and he does like funny things with the notation and the staff looks weird and he's got all these like ambient sounds and it's it's percussive. But at the end of the day, as far as contemporary music goes, like he's kind of old school. It's like not Mm -hmm. really a big deal now, but it was baby's first introduction into like contemporary chamber music. And I was playing with like dear friends, like my, my friend, Michael Pettit was, was violin number one. And he was, he was the one who was really like, Emily, I know you're not going to like this. And like, I know it's going to be really hard for you to do, but I want nothing more in the world than to play this piece with you. And I was like, Michael, for you, anything. So uh, we did Black Angels. And so I was playing with my friend Michael and Emma Brown, fantastic violist, and um, and Bryce Tempest, who's fantastic cellist. So we were playing it together and it was coached by uh, Calvin Wiersma, who was my uh, teacher in my graduate degree. And he is such, like, he's a leading man in, in contemporary music for a string quartet and for violin. And he's a real advocate for playing contemporary music. So he was like the perfect person to learn it from. So um, I picked this piece because it was such a transformative learning experience. And it is hard to listen to. Like it's supposed to be very uncomfortable. But having to listen to, to that discomfort and having to sit in it and having nowhere else to go, I think is a unique and a powerful experience on its own. And how, if you had to describe the piece to somebody who's never heard it before, which I assume is most of the people listening, um, how would you choose one word, take a page out of Sean's book, choose one word to describe the piece? Oh, gosh. Uh, Just like insane. Frenetic. Mm -hmm. Actually, I changed that to frenetic. Frenetic. Um, That is a good word. Yeah, so it's, uh, for, for people who haven't listened to Black Angels, when you listen to it, you'll be like, what the hell? I thought this was supposed to be a, a piece for a string quartet. Like, why am I hearing, um, like, glasses and gongs and drums and people shouting? Why are they shouting in German? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> so, um... So yeah, it's, it's frenetic. The whole, the whole first movement is titled Insects. And so all of the string players were amplified and the amps are turned like up to 11. And uh, so we're playing as loud as we can with the most like metallic scratching on the bridge Ponticello sounds. And like, you're just not supposed to hear pitches. And it just like changes constantly from like this, this creepy, crawly, anxious sound to to sounds that are almost like sublime. There's one mm-hmm. movement in particular where I don't, I don't know if either of you got to see like a live performance of this, but one of the movements, you know, when you see violin players, we hold our violins up on our shoulder and we play between the little white part of the bridge and the fingerboard. Awesome. And that's, that's where we do our stuff. But in one of these movements, George Crumb is like, what if we didn't, what if we just 
never did that. So you hold your violin on your lap as if you're playing cello, and then you place your fingers pretty high up on the fingerboard and you bow near the scroll. So you're, you're changing the placement of the bow and you're essentially playing the violin backwards. And it makes this um, haunting, you know, like old, old world sound because the strings just aren't resonating the way that they're meant to on the violin. It's like really muted. So, you know, like you play your violin in weird ways, you shout, you're like smashing gongs. You're, or at one point the cellist has like this serene solo that's in like the stratosphere and thumb position. And the three upper string players were, were playing uh, water glasses and were bowing. That is cool. I saw, when I saw that part, I thought that it created an interesting sound. Yeah, it's like, it's absolutely beautiful. So the, the piece demands a lot of the performers. And when you look at the, when you look at the score, it's easy to dismiss it as saying like, oh, it's contemporary, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, circling back to this idea of mathematical precision in music, George Crumb is, is incredibly precise. And if you're not keeping time, and if you're being careless about the timbres that you're creating, it just doesn't work. And mm -hmm. it falls flat. So this piece is, is frenetic, it's interesting, it's um, dynamic, and like at one point we're, we're plucking with thimbles and we're using like glass rods to make extra, you know, like wispy, wispy sounds. And it's a, a great exploration of what string instruments can do. And it's also just fun to play it with, with people you love. So like lots of, lots of memories of rehearsal sessions <laughs> where there's like a collective, like what the hell is going on? <laughs> So yeah, it's a, it's a good one. What are we doing? Yeah, I, I went to uh, the thrift store with Michael and we walked into th the thrift store and we had our bows with us and we walked up to someone and we were like, okay, I'm sorry, I know this is gonna be weird and you work here and you've probably seen some like weirder stuff before, but we have to find these glasses for a music piece. So can we play your glasses <laughs> in your section? And they're like, we're like what the fuck yeah go for it so michael and i we spent like we spent like 30 minutes just like in the thrift store in the salvation army in their their glassware section like like playing on Your all bows. the glasses that we could to say like okay this one's a g we need an f i think we could put water in it and it would turn into an f so like we're like trying to figure out what our set is and then trying to find backups in case like the other ones smash and it was just like what the hell? And then finding these like little glass uh, rods to play with, it took us like two months to find the rods to use. They were like science equipment <laughs> things that we that we found. And we were like, okay, I guess this works. It was like a little <laughs> test tube or something. So like just finding the equipment was wild. And we, we certainly pissed off a lot of the percussionists. <laughs> I'm so sorry because we were we were using their gongs and we definitely um, could have been better about coordinating when we were using them because oh. very frequently we'd be rehearsing and someone would come in and be like, it's a concert band, we need those fucking gongs. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, you're right, you do. <laughs> I could totally hear that. Yeah, so, um, so it's just like, it was so funny. Like a learning experience and working together and working with other people and understanding this like 
what felt like alien music. So yeah, Black Angels, very cool piece. Yeah, it, it is certainly one of a different. kind. Different, yeah. yes, different is different. the word for it. Um, and now the people go listen to it and they're like, my God, they're high. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with that, I'd like to thank you for your playlist, Emily. It has been a very, very enlightening and eclectic experience. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate being able to, to talk with you about what's near and dear um, to my heart and to, to catch up with you, you know, before the podcast and, and see how you're doing. And thanks for having me be a part of the show. I wish you both the best. Oh, yes, but you don't go anywhere yet because... Mm. We have a quick, uh, we are not getting rid of us that easily. Uh, we have a quick uh, music history quiz for you. Oh, can I start out by apologizing to all of my music history teachers? <laughs> Sarah Hayfully, if you're listening to this, I love you dearly. And I swear I paid attention in your class, <laughs> but my brain is empty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will let Sean take that right after the next quick little break. So stay with us. Thank you, Emily. And you've been listening to Music Speaks, a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Next time, we'll be doing our first deep dive and discussing Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. That's it for me. I'm Sean Rimkunis. I'm Hunter Sagona. And keep listening to what you love.